You're listening to the Fair to Midland podcast, the podcast where independent riders can talk about their work and share their inspirations. This week, we're joined by Sheldon Lee Compton. Sheldon Lee Compton is a short story writer, novelist, and poet from Eastern Kentucky. He's the author of four books, the short story collections, The Same Terrible Storm and Where Alligators Sleep, The Novel Brown Bottle, and A True Story, a novella. His fiction and poetry have been published in more than 150 journals, both online and in print. His first involvement in the indie lit community dates back to 2002 when he first started publishing Cellar Door Magazine. In 2012, he was a finalist for the Gertrude Stein Fiction Award and the Steel Fiction Award. The Same Terrible Storm was nominated for the Thomas and Lily D. Chaffin Award for Excellence in Appalachian Writing, while his short stories have been nominated four times for the Pushcart Prize, as well as Best of the Net, Story South's Million Writers Award, and cited in Best Small Fictions 2015 and Best Small Fictions 2016. His other writing has appeared in the anthologies Degrees of Elevation, Short Stories of Contemporary Appalachia, Walk Till the Dogs Get Mean, Meditations on the Forbidden from Contemporary Appalachia, and Larry Fessenden's Sudden Storm, A Wendigo Reader. He lives in Pikeville, Kentucky with his partner, the photographer Heather McCoy, and their two children, Tyler Lee and Natalie Grace. These days, he's hanging out at his first and dearest internet home, Bent Country, and he's recently started a new blogging collective for independent writers called Poverty House. I'm excited he's agreed to be here today and to call him my friend and mentor. Join us on this journey on episode one with Sheldon Lee Compton. Uh, welcome to you, friend. It's good to see you. Hey, bud. Um, let's, uh, first, let's give some folks some background as to, to how we know each other and, and why you're guest number one on here. And uh, we met during uh, grad school when I was at Concordia St. Paul and you were a professor in three of my classes and, uh, we, we hit it off from there. And, you know, you were, you were kind of one of the first people that looked at me and said, Hey, I believe in what you're doing. And I think you've kind of got a, a future here. And, uh, you know, I thought you were the perfect guy to come on here and be number one, especially since we're going to talk about like independent writing and, and, and how that goes. Uh, you're my guru. So, Hey, you're, are, you're, you're the lead, you're the lead off man. <laughs> all right. Be all right. I'll Ricky Henderson. The shit out of this, <laughs> there, there you go. So, I mean, Hey, the new blog though, we're, we're going to talk about that uh, later and everything and, and let you, let you talk about your work, but man, that's kick ass. That's a heck of an idea. How'd that come to you? Um, poverty house. Well, yeah, I started it as a, uh, just, you know, another, lit journal i've i've had several and um i started out thinking you know it has to be a print journal you know because at that time i still didn't realize that most of anything worth reading is found online anymore honestly Mm -hmm. if you're talking about cutting edge you know writing that can really move you in ways that maybe the big five publishers just don't care about uh don't have a market for um, then I realized I had better readership with online journals and I had some good luck there. And then, um, I had recently let go of revolution John, which was the last, um, journal that I was, uh, 
working with <clears throat> and uh anthony neil smith took that thing over and he's running with it like a scalded dog you know yeah. and uh he for is. some reason though as soon as that happened i thought you know i didn't like instantly miss it but there were just things i was wanting to do uh that i just felt like i wasn't able to do with revolution john at that time and i think in the back of my mind i knew i wanted something besides just a regular lit journal you know yeah um but I started it off as that poverty house. I had the submission manager and I published five or six stories, I guess. And then I remember that back in the early knots, like 2004, somewhere through there, there was um, a website that was more or less just guest blogging. And I'd also been part of one of those as well, uh, probably in about 2014. Um it was a place called uh, Enclave and it was just me and a bunch of other writers who would go in and we had access and we could post, you know, our own things and so forth. So it was very much the same thing as what Poverty House is. Um, and I think that it just developed in that way. I, I remember thinking, boy, I'd like to have this particular writer. I'd like to have a lot of their stuff here, you know, and mm -hmm. I've did that in the past. Howie Good. Uh, is a poet, it's a prose poet I like real well, and I published a lot of his stuff. Uh, and then I thought, well, why does it always have to be that I'm accepting or declining work from writers I already know I like? I'm yeah. going to, you know, eight times out of ten, it's going to be something that I'd say yes to anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just kind of led me to the idea that I could... I wanted to make sure the website would do that first and Wix is, uh, has that capability. And so I just started inviting writers that whose work I like. Um, so they could just post, you know, post pretty freely. I've got just kind of a, of a disclaimer there, uh, that if any kind of fucked up stuff's put on there that, you know, somebody let me know and I'll, I'll get rid of it because I don't really edit anything before it's posted that's discretion that's up to the discretion of the writer or the blogger but that's how the idea came about was just i just wanted a collective of uh writers whose work i liked and um a self-sustaining kind of community for for just all different types of uh viewpoints and you know i have kind of an eclectic uh interest in different types of writing and different kinds of writers so that was a good way to uh, go about that and it is, I mean, there's, there's everything on there from poetry to, you know, I've done music reviews on there. I mean, yep. like it's, it's a neat little place where you can go and get, it's like a lit hub for cool people. How's that? Yeah, You know, and you get there and you're like, oh man, there's, there's a killer poem or man, that's a great short story or this guy digs this music or whatever. I mean, if you listen to a lot of like writing podcasts, they're always like, well, what are you listening to? What influences your writing? Yeah. And you, you can go there and see it, you know, that's true. So, that's true. and it, it's cool to see, you know, a lot of the folks that are kind of under that same umbrella in the same place. It is. It's oh, nice. I like it. And then, um, yeah, I think there's just, and there's just a ton of material and content that just, because I've invited about 30 people. And so we have 30 people not all of them are posting, uh, regularly or, and some haven't posted yet at all, but yeah, we've had, I think before I did and opened the doors to bloggers, 
I had posted maybe 30 some pieces on there, maybe less 20 some. And as of today, there's like 84 pieces on there. Yeah. And I couldn't have done that picking and choosing as a, as a lit journal editor. I, it mm-hmm. took me a year, a year to do that, you know, yeah. for a long time. Well, you, I was proud you picked up the one of mine you picked up. I mean, I'd, I'd sent that one out a couple of times, but it's, it's kind of in that, early Larry Brown vein. And mm-hmm. if you, if you don't read that kind of stuff, like it gets kicked back quite a few times, but you dug it and stuck it up there and, and yeah. I, I thank you for it. Like it, well, it's, it's a good, it's piece. a good, it's a good story, bud. you do good, good. You do really, really good work. It, it was immediately obvious to me when I got your first, uh, <clears throat> when I got your first assignment there, when uh, you were in grad school, uh, I have, I have a sensitivity to, the kind of work that you do, it's similar to what I do. It's similar to what, you know, the, the folks that like Larry Brown, Harry Cruz, Flannery O'Connor, you know, um, and it just immediately jumped out at me. I think I remember telling you something like, hey, you know, I finally get to uh, read something <laughs> yeah. that's not like a fantasy trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> and nothing against fantasy trilogies, I'm just yes. saying. A man can only read about Elf so much. Uh, and i may jump i've got that on here to talk about we may jump there and circle back to where i was going to start but um grit lit and you said that to me you were like you know dan you're a grit a grit lit writer i hate to break Mm -hmm. it to you or something like that in that email you sent back to me so yeah you know i've got that in my notes here like that was one of the first compliments that i got as a writer and the thing was that made me feel like I'd chosen the right path. Cause when I started out, it was more of a, a Vonnegut kind of humory kind of thing. And it just didn't feel right. Right. Okay. And then once I, you do that cliche thing where you write what you know about. Right. Yeah. And I felt like, all right, here's these two stories that I can relate to. And I'm going to, I'm just going to put my heart on the paper and the people around me and see what that looks like. And then, you know, you sent that back and then I knew like, all right, I've made the right choice here. So you feel a little validated uh, with that, but I kind of want to talk about that, that term, that, that grit lit term, because where are you at with that? Like, do you like that? nomenclature is that a real genre because daniel woodrell calls it like country nor right yeah you know nor nor. um is it just real realism by another name or like ah yeah i think think what happens is for me when i'm referred to as a grit lit writer i don't feel like that's something that i really was trying to i wasn't i wasn't really trying to do that Mm-hmm. It happens to be that certain writers who write about certain regions, those regions are gritty in and of themselves. Yeah. And if you're just writing realism that's set in a difficult place where there's violence and there's, you know, drugs and things, it's going to be grit. It's going to be grit lit. So I never felt like the ty- that that um, that name um, was something that I ever, I don't want, I mean, people might think that I try to sit down and write grit lit. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I'm a grit lit writer. I'm going to sit down and write some, some grit lit, you know, mm-hmm. that, that never enters my mind at any point ever. Um, cause I also write all kinds of other stuff. I mean, I have some stuff out there that is crazy as hell, bub. 
I have got stuff that's been published that just has nothing to do with Appalachia, you know, nothing. And uh, so I don't know. I, I guess I'm predominantly a, like a, an Appalachian writer. But yeah. the term itself, I think, is kind of cool. I mean, it's, it's a neat yeah. way of saying it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it. it puts a label on there. It's like grunge in the 90s, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> it puts a, it puts a it does. label on it. But I think I maybe – and you kind of touched on it there, and I think that's, that's where I was going with that. It's too constrictive because yeah. of what you said. Like, we're both, you know, for lack of a better word, we're both Southerners, right? Like, yeah. in our background, I'm from Arkansas, you're from Kentucky, and we're alike in a lot of ways, but we're also going to be different, like, just because of, you know, the region that we're from, right? So mm-hmm. you got people that are regional writers, like Ron Rash, David Joy, folks like that, people that we yeah. admire, you know, but you know, I've never worked in a coal mine, you know, right. and, and I know you got family history with that where mm-hmm. I live, like we're dirt farmers, right. you know, and my, my daddy's folks are from the hills, like the foothills of the Ozarks. So we've got a connection there, but then on other places like, you know, dirt farming, coal mining, not the same thing, no. you know? So I think where, where you can get some things is like, we both know poverty, right. Yeah. And you, you both know, like, you know, folks down on their luck and yeah. like that, that's, that's everywhere, unfortunately, where we're from. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's more of a, I like that gritty realism, that grit lit. I don't, I don't so much have a problem with the term as to just, it's so hard to define because yeah, for somebody yeah. in Southeast Ohio, that's a different kind of right. grit, you know, yeah. or Pittsburgh's and different like, kind of grit. Right. You know, and you mentioned South, uh, you mentioned Ohio, Don, Don Pollock writes, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of things that he's like, they consider him like a grit lit grandfather, you know, or forefather or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I know that he doesn't have that in mind when he's working. Um, yeah. I, I'm fortunate to know Don and he, he doesn't really like, I think if you'd have asked him the question about grit lit, he would have, he's a really, really super quiet guy. He's, he's really shy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he doesn't dodge questions, but I don't think that he would really even understand why there has to be a label for it. Yeah. I've yeah. heard him say before, I'm just writing about good people, you know, in hard times. And and that's how I kind of see it, too. I'm, I'm influenced a lot by him and um, his approach to things and. Yeah, and it's not about like, oh, I don't like labels and shit like that because mm-hmm. I don't care about labels, good or bad. I don't have any. You know, there's some writers who are like, I'm anti-label. Don't try to put me in a corner. Don't try to box me in. I've not, I'm not on any kind of mission, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> to, to 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 define anything at all. But um, but th- like for instance, with with the Don Pollock's work, I mean. There is no grittier work. If you read um, Kit Knock'em Stiff, that's mm-hmm. that's like you look up grit lit in the dictionary, and it should the whole entry should just be that entire novel. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, but he didn't sit down and try to make it that way. You know. Yeah. Um, I don't I know think how to say it any other way except some things that I write fall into that category, some don't, uh, but I don't give any thought to it. And if folks want to call me a grit lit writer, I'm that's okay. I don't have any problem yeah. with it. That don't mean though that tomorrow I might not write a short story about ghost dinosaurs. 
You yeah. know? <laughs> right. That's you know, I, do it, you that's know? the way I am. I might sit down and write a poem tomorrow. Like, you know, you never you know. know. And I have a book of poetry out that probably yeah. half the people read my stuff. All two of them don't even know <laughs> that it's yeah. out there, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, it's, so I read this thing this morning. It's kind of like, you know, sometimes the cosmos will give you something, you know, like I knew I was talking to you today, but I didn't know when I went online that I, I would run into this, but this quote kind of goes into what we were talking about. It's, it was actually, you know, ironically it was on lit hub that we were talking about earlier. It's called thicker than water, a brief history of family violence in Appalachian, Kentucky. Really? And, and, yeah. Angie Romines uh, wrote yeah. this piece and there's a quote in there. And I think it kind of sums up what we're talking about. It says, I keep trying to understand the blood I came from and just how much of it still runs in my veins, yeah, you know? I, and I, I think that's kind of what I do when I write, like, yeah. and when I talk about blood, I'm talking about the folks yeah. around me, even I'm not kin to like, but the people yeah. I come from, I'm trying to figure them out whenever I write mm-hmm. something, you know, why are we making the decisions we're making in a place where we live and, you know, yeah. what outside forces are making us, you yeah. know, do that's that. That's a really good way to go about it, to approach it. Yeah. So um, at, at, at certain points in, in my writing career, uh, I became really interested in taking, um, I wanted the, the, even now what I try to keep in mind is I'm, I'm taking people who I'm taking characters who are in terrible positions. They're, sort of looked down on, you know, people are condescending toward them, but I want to show that I just want to show how much heart and how much survival instincts people have where I'm mm-hmm. from. Um, Cause there's a big giant brush that paints Eastern Kentucky, especially uh, in, in just one big way. Like, um, and the, the problem with that isn't the most, just the obvious stuff there are people here who are stronger than, I don't know. There's just people here who are so strong of character and of will. And I wanted to write stories that displayed that. I wanted to be able to take a a guy who might be a, a drunk and steals from people or whatever, you know, and put that person in a, in a predicament or situation in a work of fiction that gives the reader the chance to see how well they can shine when the pressure is on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, cause half the people I live around are either on drugs or recovering from drugs or in the ground from drugs, for instance. Yeah. But that just don't eliminate the fact that those were good, some good people, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. There's something about that. I, I want to show that that's what I've tried probably since my first novel, uh, brown bottle from that point forward. That's what I've kind of tried to do when I write about the area. Yeah. Well, and I, I can piggyback off that a little bit. I mean, where we come from, I mean, both places got stark things about them. I mean, like, yeah. like the Delta's got two different things going on over here. You've got, you know, some of the poorest counties in America are here. And then of course you've got in the Ozarks, we dealt with the opioids and and the same things that y'all dealt with over there in Kentucky. We got meth running, you know, everywhere. So, I mean, there's some stark realities here that if you don't, and I'm getting somewhere, what I'm saying here, I want to talk about authenticity and and voice when you write something, because if you don't get the details of that stuff, right. 
and mm-hmm. about the area, about the people, about the socioeconomics and about the actual, you know, drugs themselves or the situation itself that mm-hmm. can come, it can come off wrong, especially if you're reading yeah. it and you're from that area. Mm-hmm. So I went back last week and I read winter's bone and rewatched it and man, Woodrell does a great job with that because I mean, that's, and, and David does too. David Joy does. You do. Mm-hmm. Ron Ron does. Um, and it reminded me of that Larry Brown. Uh, he had that, you know, picture, uh, that piece of paper above his typewriter. It said, write about Tula and, and kick oh, ass. Yeah. Right. You know, so yeah. I, I think if you write what you know, you're going to get that stuff right. And mm-hmm. when people try to dip into these areas that are kind of from out, outside, that's, that's tricky. So, I mean, you got to have that voice right. And, yeah. and kind of know your characters to get yeah. there. So what do you, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, do you have a running dialogue in your head of how you've heard people talk, how you've seen people act or like, what's your well you draw on there? Yeah. Well, I guess first, the first thing I do is put, put a filter on for certain things. Like I've written characters who worked uh, as outside uh, men at coal mines, you know, the coal mines have a, uh, one or two guys, usually just one guy on the outside, especially for smaller operations. And like, you know, <clears throat> he'll pick rock off the belt. He'll charge scoops and make sure the fans running and stuff like that. I've did that. You know, I've worked as a, I've had what they call surface papers, you know, mm-hmm. surface mining papers. I've did that work. And that's, so I've had characters who did that work. I've not yet and never will, um, try to write about, uh, try to write a character who works underground. So I don't just strictly say if I've not done it, I'm not going to write about it. Mm-hmm. But if I tried to write a character who worked underground in the mines, it would be, it would not be authentic. And everyone that read it who had never been in the mines would think it was authentic, except mm-hmm. the guys and gals who were. And I do not want somebody reading my stuff and saying, you know, it's real obvious. This guy's never been under the mountain. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it's, it's a matter of not just writing what I know. Cause I actually know enough about an underground operation. I could write about it, but I wouldn't be able to put those um, unique little quirks that I can put in like, when I wrote the character who worked outside of the mines picking rock and stuff, I remember writing something to the effect of having, he had a yellow piece of chalk. And as the belt would come through, if he saw a tire in the belt, he would mark it with the yellow. And it, and those, those belts go by pretty quick. And I'm mm-hmm. talking about like one of those small operations with just one belt of coal coming out and you, you know, you're picking rock off. And as you're doing that, you're watching for tires and you hit it with the yellow piece of chalk so that, when they look, they can know, they know where to go to repair the belt more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's little things like that inside the, the mine that I don't know anything about. And so the person who would read that and know it was unauthentic would be the person who would notice I did not include any of those details. Yeah. It's not. So for me, like I said, the right what you know is all right. I'm, I'm so big on be, uh, on discovery as a writer. That's why I don't always just write what I know. 
because I like to discover things while mm-hmm. I'm writing something. Um, but as far as authenticity and that kind of stuff and ha- what I have in mind when I'm approaching um, that kind of literature, <clears throat> I just want to be able to write about it from a place that is authentic's not really the right word I'm looking for, but I want to be able to write about it in a way that you can tell that my heart's had some, some, you know, my heart's been in it before. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Cause like I might can tell you, yeah, you mark that yellow line, you know, you mark that belt with that chalk and then you're, you're picking rocks and you could go tomorrow and write a short story where a guy's doing that, but you might not think to put in there about how fucking scary it is to try mm-hmm. to be grabbing a rock about the size of your head off the belt that's going over a 200 foot drop while also trying to hit a piece of chalk up here and not Mm -hmm. let that rock drag you off that mountain. Mm -hmm. That fear, that type of fear that you'd be able to describe in that story. It's not something that you can do unless you felt it. Yeah. And so makes it kind of palpable really for whoever's reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my wife talks about there's a there's a movie coming out i can't remember what it's called but hillary swank's in it and she's doing a southern accent and it's god awful mm. you know and there there's just there's just some things that if you don't get it right like you mm. said like just the little quirks of the way we talk or yeah. the the just the dialect in your writing if you're trying like i can't write a story about i can't write the friends of eddie coyle like i can't mm. write that you know, I don't know Boston. Right. I don't know anything about it, but I, I can, I can get right what's here. And I, I think yeah. that's a, a difficult thing, especially for young riders to try to figure yeah. out when they're trying to figure out who they are and what they want to do. That that's a mis- like, yeah, I wrote a story one time. Uh, it actually got published, but it was, it was called Michigan is for lovers. Right. And mm-hmm. it was about me and my wife going up there on vacation. And while mm-hmm. it was good, I don't feel like it was some of the best stuff, you know, that I ever did because I was just kind of, drawing from around me instead of being like a part of a part of that place so that kind of leads me into something we talked about i sent you an email during during school and uh i sent it to matt too because uh you get into misunderstandings and misconceptions of stuff too from from people that that read your work and you talked about earlier that you know where we're from kind of gets some side eye sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, I remember I wrote a story one time I sent it in and there was a girl in my class and, uh, I'd used the word papaw in it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of her critiques was, she says, I'm not real sure what a papaw is. Oh my gosh. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, I, 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 I don't know if she did or not. <laughs> not sure. sure. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, you know, and then I thought to myself, and this was my brain going on default. I'm like, well, who took you hunting and who took you fishing yeah. and stuff like this? And I thought, like, have you got a mammal? You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, what do you, you know? You just say you don't think about that stuff. Uh, the stuff you don't think about. Stuff. Yeah. The stuff you don't think about that you're sharing like that, that should be the same way you're writing. Mm. Like, I used to worry about saying Papa or uh, using whatever kind of certain dialect and things. Uh, I used to sit and think, am I making this clear enough to the reader? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like that lady you're talking about. Uh, my papa took me up in the hills. He being the father of my mother, you know, <laughs> right, bullshit, right. you know, yeah. no, 
I yeah. took this after Brees Pancake. Pancake did not explain shit. Mm-hmm. He wrote, and you either knew what he was talking about or you didn't. But the beauty of it was because he wrote it that way, it had such heart that what people came away with was that feeling of that heart in it. Because right. he has a story. Um, shit, it's a story, and I, I should know this. But it's a story about a guy who's who's on strike from the coal mines, okay? And I can't – is it called The Last Day of Winter or Last Day of Winter? Anyway, um, he's talking about – I think the story opens and they're, they're working in the mine and stuff, and there's all this jargon that he's using, and – which is kind of amazing because he never was in the coal mines, but he was able to do this, but that's what he was able to do that most of us can't, mm-hmm. you know, give that authenticity. But he used so much uh, sort of jargon and so much sort of lingo and things that I had no fucking idea what he was talking about, <laughs> but it didn't really matter. What I loved about it was he just said, I'm not here to teach you a cultural class. I'm not mm-hmm. here to teach you about cultural diversity or geography or the mining industry. You know, I'm so I'm not going to stop and slow down what's going to be otherwise a powerful story and make it part essay. Yeah. And, ex- and explain to you what the hell's going on here. Unless, you know, because that didn't necessarily need to be part of the plot. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to know those things in order to understand the story. And then those being in there improved the story. So, it's just something I saw him doing that that stuck with me. I was like, he didn't explain shit. Yeah, he just it was it. it was extreme showing, really, more so yeah. than telling. You know, yeah. it's hey, here it is. You figure it out, but if you read it, you're going to get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the people that can do that, they're pretty unbelievable. Because I've read some stuff like the beginning of Tomato Red is kind of that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've read that, uh, uh-uh. but. Uh, Woodrell wrote that too, but I mean, the beginning of that is just, it's, it's from, it's the rambling stream of conscious of a math addict. Right. And it's just right. like everywhere, but you believe it, you know, yeah. like the minute you read it, I heard David Joy say one time he read that chapter, uh, for three months solid trying to figure out how, how Woodrell did that. You wow. Know? David. So, hey. Oh man. I tell you what, I haven't talked to David in a long time, but, um, that guy's just such a, He's a free spirit. Have you got to meet him? I haven't met him yet. No, I've talked, I've talked to Ron on the phone before, uh, Ron Ash and he, I know he and David are, are, are close, but I had never met David. No, David's just a free spirit. I can't, anytime somebody mentions him, I don't really think about his writing as much as I think about his uh, personality and his approach to the world. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'll tell you just, this is, this was, this is the whole, the whole trip cracked me up, but, I went to Lincoln Memorial University. They had a literary event there that um, Silas House and some of the, you know, the big, you know, the gatekeepers or whoever had going. And then uh, I knew somebody that snuck me in, you know, because I've always been a, a black sheep of the Appalachian writing world. Dan, you may not be aware of that, mm. but it wouldn't take much digging to find that out. Um, I'm just uh I just don't, I don't do right. I guess. I don't know. I don't, I could never be a gatekeeper. I don't give a shit about the gate. I'll kick the gate down. I'll crawl over it. I'll bury it. I'll burn it. I can't stand that kind of shit. Anyway, 
We were at Lincoln Memorial. You University. leave you leave the chain off and let the cows out. <laughs> yeah, I give yeah. a shit, man. Let them roam. Yeah, let everybody in. Let's just do the best we can. Everybody should be in. But a couple of things happened there that I'll just never forget, and they uh, all had to do with uh, David. Um, I first got there, he was there, and I hadn't met him yet, but me and him had been corresponding a lot. And this was when I think he had published his first book, and that's all he had. <clears throat> that's all he had out there in the world at that time. Um, he had the three book deal with Putnam, and he had written the first one, and it was it'd been published. Well, I got to the university. And I went up to my room and uh, he and um, Brown, what's that boy's name from Richmond, Brown, Wesley Brown, Wes mm -hmm. Brown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were in the hallway and had him a, had him a fifth of liquor. And uh, I was alcohol. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've uh, got nine years sober. And uh, I, but at the time I was in huge active alcoholism and, so anyway, we got a little drunk there in the hallway. And then he said, let me show you something. And he kind of ran me outside. And there was this old block tower type thing made out of like, it was looked like it was probably built in 1800 or something. I don't know what it would have been, but the top was off of it. So it was just like this, you know, cylinder of block with an open top. Well, he took me back in there and he said, here, do this. And he laid on the ground and looked up through, and he said, lay down here beside him. I mean, look what I'm talking about, you know. And we were laying there and looking up at the sky out of this, this block, this rock tower. Yeah. And I kept waiting for him to kind of explain to me what I was supposed to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. Never nothing. He didn't say a word like, see, see what I told you? Look at that. You know, he was just, he laid there for about one, two, three, four beats and was gone. Just he was just gone, <clears throat> and then uh, later on, Don Don was there too. He was the guest um, reader or guest speaker or guest lecturer. He was the guest of honor. Yeah, uh, and J uh, David's a big fan of his, and he was so scared to meet him. And I thought it was kind of cute, which I'm a lot older than David. You know, I'm like I don't know, twenty years older than him or something crazy or fifteen, but. Um, Don and his wife were sitting outside the uh, convention hall or whatever, where he was getting ready to go in and read. And I saw him and I went over and hugged her and uh, hugged him. And David was walking behind me and I, I started, I turned around to say, Hey man, you know, and son, he beelined it past me like a freight train. <laughs> I mean, I went whoosh. And I told Don, I said, well, well there went David joy. And he went, that boy that was running. <laughs> I said, yeah, just ran. <laughs> And, uh, oh, mercy. and, um, uh, he went into the convention hall and I followed him in and he was, there was a bird, there was a bird loose in the lobby of that, of that hall. And David had his hat, you know, that hat he always wears. Yeah. Yeah. He had yeah. that hat off trying his damnedest to catch that bird. And I'm, <laughs> this is the kind of guy that's how he felt. Like when he was in public, he just, who he, he was who he was, but with Don Pollock, that dude wasn't wanting nothing to do with it. I told him, I said, Don's going to come to our panel later. And he said, what? And uh, I said, he said he wants to come, you know, because they were talking to us. We had, we were on a panel of some kind. And uh, it killed him. He just about wouldn't go. I said, you, he said, I can't go. I can't go. He said, Donald Ray Pollock can't listen to me talk. 
what will he think? What will he say? But seeing him being such a fanboy just it sticks yeah. in my mind because he's such an original person. David should never ever feel like you know, I in my mind I was thinking, David, you're the exact kind of person Dawn would love. Mm. You know, the exact original down to earth kind of person that he would love. And uh I think eventually he did, you know, catch up with him and get to talk to him and stuff. But yeah. that's just when you when people say David Joy, I think block tower, trying to catch <laughs> a bird, scared to death of Don Pollock. <laughs> then I think about yeah. the book he's written. <laughs> I did. I had a moment. It wasn't that crazy. But I mean, same family tree. We had an assignment where we had to uh you had to interview a working writer. Yeah. Uh, so I, I sent off to David's people and I, I didn't get anything back. I think he was writing the one that he just put out. But uh, I thought, well, I said, fuck it. I'm going to send one to Ron. Mm-hmm. So I knew he worked at Western Carolina and I thought, well, I'm just going to send it to his, to his email and maybe he'll reply. Sure. So, so I emailed him. I told him, you know, what I want to do. And he said, uh, he said, thank you for the reply. He said, uh, he said, I can't email you. But he said, you can call me if you want to. Okay. And I went, I was, you could knock me over with a feather. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was like, but I, he was so generous. I called him. He talked to me for an hour and, wow. uh, the, the I've whole night, that way. It, the whole night before I kept telling my wife, I'm like, I'm going to talk to Ron Rash tomorrow. Like yeah. I can't, I can't wrap my head around it because, yeah. and that I'm going to lead this into my next question because, uh, he wrote Burning Bright, that collection of short stories, Ron. Yeah, I love it. And uh, Hard Times, that I think it's the first story in there mm-hmm. when you open it up. And that story was one of the first stories where you, you read something and you go like, I know these people, mm-hmm. you know. And because uh, my mama and papa had, my papa worked for uh, Banquet Foods. And it was okay. Con Agri. He drove a chicken truck. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, he'd go catch chickens with his hands, load them on this truck. And, you know, I'd gone with him plenty of times and gone to the company store and all that. And, you know, and, you know, I'd gather up eggs and he'd, he'd get some hens sometimes and he'd lop their heads off. I'd run around the yard, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd, I'd been there, you yeah. know? So w- when I read that story, I was like, golly. So, you know, when, when you read something, like that and it connects with you like to be able to talk to the person that wrote it that's a pretty that's a pretty cool thing yeah. so yeah i guess the question i'm going for is a two-part question because i think you're gonna have two different answers what was the first book you read that did that for you and then the second was like what writer do you think's had that kind of influence on what you do because i know mine are different and i right. thought yours might be different too the first writer I read that had that like ringing inside of me of familiarity that mm-hmm. that made me realize they're writing about something that I experienced type thing. Yeah. Um, well, it's an odd kind of thing, really. My um, my uncle's an Appalachian poet. He he's he's won numerous uh, state literary awards and. Um, GC Compton is his name. And, uh, I read a lot of his stuff when I was growing up. And so I was, I was, uh, aware of literature that was like about stuff I knew and about the kinds of people I knew at a really early age because of his work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
so that was like my first introduction. But to me, I just thought, well, that's just what you do. You know, I didn't really, I wrote a story when I was 10 because I started reading his stuff when I was about nine or 10. And I wrote a story when I was 10 and uh, about, uh, about a guy that goes, it's a, it's a crazy ass story, man. I was 10, but he gets on an airplane. There's a ghost on the airplane, blah, blah, blah. But here's the problem where me and him lived, me and my uncle was a town called Virgie the easternmost tip of Kentucky, right on the Virginia line. Yeah. And um, I had set the story in Virgie. All right. Never thought a thing about it. The beautiful thing about what my uncle did for me is he, at 10, treated me like a peer. Uh, and at this point, he had already had a great deal of success as a poet. And he told me instantly. I was real excited because it was about a nine-page handwritten story. I felt like, you know, I'd done something pretty good there. And he complimented me, but then he also told me, you can't have a fucking airport in Virgie, Kentucky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And (laughs) the thing about it is two things. One, he's right. And he decided to tell me that. And it's also my first introduction to writing regional literature in a way that's believable. Yeah. You know, yeah. you have to write, if you're going to write about Virgie, Kentucky, there are going to be certain limitations on what you have to work with. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first person whose work I read that introduced me to that kind of, you know, the kind of stuff that I, that rang true for me, the way you're talking about. And then the second question you asked, the second part of that was, what was that, Dan? It was, uh, what, what writer has had the most influence on your work? Oh, there's two. Um, Breeze Pancake. Um, and it's crazy, man. I mean, the guy just has one book. It's a collection of short stories. But yeah, um, that book is uh, nearly perfect. You know, there's, um, I mean, there's one or two stories in there that are just so-so. Mm-hmm. But they weren't his polished work. They were included. His mom and... Um, I want to say, was it James McPherson or the, or John, one of his former teachers and, and, and Brees's mom got together and chose like from his stories, he still had left laying around or whatever, chose what to put in there. And the, the stories you read in there that aren't as strong as like trilobites or something like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. it's because he hadn't polished those. He would have never submitted those for publication in the form they were in. Um, so just not only is it just one book, but it's only actually a handful of stories I consider to be his his work because I know he wouldn't have wanted those other stories, those other two or three stories published. Yeah. So he he does he wouldn't have considered that his body of work. But that writer has had Breeze Pancake was um and not not because of his ability to write about the region in a, in a way that was amazing, but it was how he focused so strongly on characters, um, character motivation, uh, difficult decisions, survivalism. Um, so that gave me sort of that broad foundation of here's how I want to approach writing about my people, mm-hmm. you know, but then in terms of style, um, I have to give 50% to Michael Andache, um, 
he's my favorite living writer. Um, and it's so crazy, man. People know him because he wrote a book called The English Patient, which was made into a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never read that book, but um, his book, Coming Through Slaughter, it is by far had the biggest impact on me, even more so than Brees' collected stories. Um, Cause it let me know it. I thought if I wrote Appalachian literature, I had to write it in a very muscular style, a mm-hmm. very pared down lean, you know what I mean? Hemingway like yeah. type yeah. stuff. Yeah. But when I read Andache, I saw that he was able to do high purple prose, very lyrical work um about folks that didn't necessarily fit into that kind of thing because he was writing about buddy bolden in new orleans um one of the early um guys that come up with jazz music and sort of founded that sort of thing and uh to write about that in such a high lyrical way i wanted to do it instantly i felt like it was something that'd be fun and challenging to write appalachian stories with very high lyricism Mm-hmm. Very, very lyrical style and very like purple prose being supposedly, you know, don't do that. Readers don't like that. And you know what? For marketing purposes, absolutely. I imagine if David were to write his next novel in that style, they would throw that back at him so fast. It'd be like a ninja star coming at him. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's not mm-hmm. marketable. Okay. Yeah. And David wants to make a living as a writer. So, you know, he's probably not going to do that. Um, but what I did with my first collection, the same terrible storm, that is my best book. I can write till I'm 90 and that's still going to be my best book because it blended those two things. Um, and it's so satisfying to just allow yourself because you hear, you know, that term purple prose, um, don't Mm -hmm. make stuff so inaccessible. Don't sit and describe, you know, this to the point where and put metaphors in on top of metaphors and symbolism and and build all this stuff up for like a scene that takes, you know, three pages for a guy to get across the living room. You know? Yeah. Well, that's just no that's nothing more than somebody telling you you can't do that. Well, I will fucking do it mm-hmm. every time you tell me not to. Simple as that. Yeah. And I did it and it worked real well for me. Cause somebody could tell me right now, you know, your first book, the same terrible storm. It was published in 2012. That is the shittiest book I've ever read in my life. And it's the only one of my books that if somebody tells me that about it, it doesn't phase me because I know they're wrong. Yeah. But yeah. that's the only book. And it's because those two uh, influences pancake and Dache, combined in that book. And I really kind of regret I didn't stay in that same headspace as a writer. Mm-hmm. I would like to produce more of that kind of work. The novel I'm writing now, I was just today, I was working on um, some chapters of it and I started thinking maybe I can go back in and pick some spots here and there and sort of expand and insert some of that purple prose in. <clears throat> I'm going to have to work that muscle some more because I've lost it. <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, and it's hard to do because you're in a, you're in a flow of that, that, you know, that style in that book probably. And those characters are the way they are. And that narrative's going the way that it's going. And, you know, if somebody told me to expand, you know, the one you've read, I don't know that I could go back and do it because to me, that's how that story's told. 
Yeah. You know, it feels, and, it yeah. feels like cheating to go back and do that, honestly. Yeah, it, it does. Or but like there's some without work count or something. Yeah, to get it to 60 so they'll publish yeah. it, you know. But uh, which I think we can have a whole other conversation about books being too damn long. But yeah. we, we got people in this country that won't read, but we want to sell them 60, 70, 80,000 word books. Yeah. Um, Barry Hanna could do that. You know, he yeah. could take a he could take a story about a down on his luck guy fishing and farting on a dock. Yeah. And, or, and turn and turn it into a story with purple prose in it. Yeah, you know, and absolutely just poetic. Yeah. And I mean he could I've got long lost happy here. And whenever I get in a in a rut, I'll read a short story or two out of there just mm-hmm. to watch him work. You yeah, know, like, he could dance. Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) and that proves that you can write about the places we're talking about writing about, and you can do it in a way where you can do both. Absolutely. Uh, Paget Powell is another writer who can do that real well. hmm. If you read Paget Powell. No, I haven't. I need to. Yeah. He, he, he won like the Southern book circuit serial, whatever. I don't even know what these things are called because I Mm -hmm. gave up on all that a long time ago, but the Southern Mm -hmm. book circuit critics circle award. Fuck. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Dan? <laughs> the, golden, the Golden Globe. <laughs> the Golden Globe. Yeah, he won the Golden Globe. But he did for his uh, one of his early novels, and uh, everyone, Adesto, I think it might have been called, E-D-I-S-T-O. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very Southern, and it was very, um, you know, very in that sort of box. And the dude pretty much never wrote another thing like that. He did his Barry Hanna thing where he would yeah. write about these characters in these areas, but it was always sort of, it had that Vonnegut sort of uh, uh, playfulness. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Almost an absurdity to it. You know? yeah, well, yeah, they're yeah. definitely absurdity to his, yeah. some of his stuff. But that's the guy you might like to read just to see what we want to do. And I'm, and I'm talking you know, like me, you, people who write and try or trying to do with uh, our areas and our region, our people, what we're trying to do with, we need to be brave enough to listen to our instincts and don't and and don't allow outside pressure based on based on um, anything. Don't allow outside pressure about what you should write as a regional writer. Uh, influence anything you do be willing to never win another award well, award the way Padgett Powell did he was willing he could have wrote more books like he'd written and win more awards and been more prestigious and been somebody I could have spoken about and you would have known the same way if I'd have said William Faulkner he could have done it mm-hmm. uh, he just did not he just chose not to do it because it wasn't rewarding to him the best thing I've ever heard said about writing and I am going to have to ask for like a little pause so I can plug in this laptop, brother. Or it's going to go yeah. better than hell on me. No, go ahead. You're good. Okay, man. But first, uh, let me say this before I forget. Um, what was I saying, Dan? Uh, the best thing you've ever read about writing. Yes. Do you write to impress other people or do you write to express what's in your heart? Nothing's ever been said better about writing. I'm going to plug this thing in. Yeah, you got it. You got it.
We're hitting our stride, brother. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, we're there. We're there. We're there. You get plugged in. We'll keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you write to impress other people or do you write to express what's in your heart? And you have to ask yourself that truly and honestly and answer it honestly. Yeah, I think that's the issue going on. There's so many. I'm kind of hoping that publishing goes the way that the music industry went, mm-hmm. you know, where you can, the independents and the, the self publishers can kind of shake that tree a little bit because a man can only read so many stories with an eight word title that starts with the, you know, yeah. like it's always like the man at the end of the world with a spoon in his shoe or something, you know, yeah. it's like some yeah. weird, some weird title. And it's like, everything yeah. wants to be the same and nothing just wants to be, true right yeah. like what what it is so yeah. I, I mean that that's that's the key to me and i said that earlier about about writing and 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 reading because yeah you're you're writing what's in your heart but son of a bitch you want somebody to read it you know yeah, they're, they're, and yeah. and it's getting somebody to believe in what you're saying enough to put it out there and i'm not saying we're arrogant but i think all writers are arrogant to a point because i mean we're the smart asses that are going i'm gonna write something and by god you're gonna read it yeah you know important enough that you need to read it right but i mean you can't gatekeep that either like i mean there's got it that's that independent streak that i think we're trying to highlight here with this podcast and your blog and your work and a lot of the people we're gonna have on here kind of feel that way because the big five have got such a fence up you know, yeah. that if it's not, I mean, I've had stuff rejected just on word count alone. Right. Really? So, you know what that tells you? They didn't read it no. at all. They saw, I got a 50,000 word novel mm-hmm. and they were like, well, I'm out on that. Right. You, you know? have a book. They say, you know, yeah. I mean, every book I read tends to be 250, 260 pages. Yeah. I've read you know? books longer than 300 pages, but I don't think one should ever be written. Honestly, it wouldn't hurt my feelings yeah. a bit if, every book written from now till never would never went over 300 pages. If you can't say it in 300, maybe you can't say it, but you read David Foster Wallace, for example, though, mm-hmm. he's not trying to write a novel. Right. He's doing this encyclopedic approach. Mm-hmm. He's purposely, he's going reverse minimalism. They mm-hmm. actually have a term for it, but I can't think of it. Maximalist. Yep. yep. Something to that effect. But it's what Pynchon has done. It's what David Foster Wallace done. It's what Gaddis did with June, um, was it J.R.? Anyway, mm-hmm. or, yeah, just these big, clunky books. You know, they they you don't accidentally write a thousand-page book. Right. You have yeah. to, at some point, you have to say to yourself, I'm going to try to write a fucking long book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to be making that decision. Yeah. And so is that more of an artistic move, or is that just, I want people to know I can write a thousand page book. Are you writing to impress or are you writing to express? I mean, yeah, exactly. And I look, and I'm not like my undergrads in history. And I understand that if you're writing nonfiction, you might have to write an 800, 900 page book, depending on who yeah. you're writing for. But as far as fiction goes, man, if you can't tell a good yarn in a quick amount of time, you're going to lose people's attention yeah. anyway. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I think some places, instill that in people and you get a lot of bloated just crap you You know and and people will go nuts for it but it's not for me right like i read the recognitions and i think that was by william gaddis i could be wrong about that 
I sometimes get him and the other guy confused that wrote Omsetter's Luck. But and I might be saying that title wrong. A lot of the modernists and a lot of these folks that um, I, 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 can, I can envy their ability to have a thousand page book. Like, for instance, Lonesome Doves is like a 900 page mm-hmm. book. But my God, not everybody's Larry McMurtry. That's, that's right. I can't yeah. think of a, another book I've read that's been of that length that was. Okay. You read a thousand page book, you finish it. You felt like you've read a thousand page book. You felt like right. I have accomplished something. I'm going out and I'm going to have something to eat. I'm going to celebrate a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, you finish Lonesome Dove as an example. It's just as normal. You mm-hmm. feel just as uh, satisfied. You don't feel like you've had to work yourself to death. And to me, there's no better magic trick in the world. I think that that book had to be that long. And that's about the, one of the only ones I would say that about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he turns around and he gives you the last picture show, yep. which is just a tight little tight yep. little thing. And it's got so much going on in it. You feel like you've watched a movie by the time yep. you've got done with it. So, yep. I mean, that's talent when you can do both. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to give people everything in 600, 700 pages and then give them the same amount in two, 280, I think yep. the last picture show is. Uh, I mean, yeah, there, there's an issue we've got to solve there to where yeah, we can is. get we can get books in people's hands. And I think the other thing it's gotta be, it's gotta be relatable to folks. I think that's going to have, that's going to have an influence too, because like you, I read, I try to read one quote unquote good book every yeah. year. You yeah. Know? And I remember reading a couple of years ago, I read the idiot. Uh, right. Uh, is it Bottoman Bottoman? However you say her name. Oh, and I read that and it started out and I thought, all right, I see what she's doing here. Yeah. You know, a quarter of the way through. All right. I see where we're going. Yeah. Half, halfway through when something going to happen. Yeah. That's Three quarters of the way through when something going to happen. And I finished it and I felt like somebody robbed me of four days. Yeah. You know, could have been reading something else. I've so often I've so picky when i when i choose books to read now because of that happening so many times mm-hmm. um well i read diaz in the distance and it was great right. you know so i mean you know both books nominated for big awards and yeah i, I don't know i couldn't judge one of them things i, I need to be nah. on that appalachian golden globes or whatever we were talking yeah, about globes, <laughs> I, can't, I don't know i was nominated one time and uh, I was nominated for the Chafin Award the same year that Don was nominated for it. And uh, it was his um, shit, man. The one that they made, the one they made the movie out of. Why can't I? God, Don, I'm sorry, buddy. Devil All the Time. <laughs> Devil All the Time. It was uh, Devil All the Time up against my first book that I was telling you about that I'm so proud of. And he, mm-hmm. got, of course, he won, rightly so. But that's the only time I've ever been nominated. And the only the best thing that came from that, I would rather have it went the way it went than to win because I got to go. I went to listen to the reading and when he got his award and stuff, and that's when I met him. Um, so I might not have – he probably wouldn't have came had he not won. That's just kind of how Don is. He wouldn't have wanted to go to that public event mm-hmm. if he hadn't won. So I only met him because – I lost when I really won getting to meet him, but that's the only time I've ever been nominated, you know, and that's probably the only time I'm ever going to get nominated. Um, 
I don't really mind that too much. I'm 47, and I think I've got to the point where um, if anything like that was going to happen, then it would it would have happened. And uh, I'm real super happy with having the readers I have, writing the books I'm writing, having the publisher I have who's willing to kind of go out on a limb with me. Because mm-hmm. I write a lot of Appalachian stuff, man. It's got witches in it and magic and shit. Yep. <laughs> you yeah. know? And yep. that's not going to fly anywhere else. But in Adam's lap, there at Cowboy Jamboree, yeah. he's just so, um, he nurtures that. And he understands what I'm trying to do. And so I'm pretty happy where I'm at. I wouldn't trade it, you know, for two Kentucky book, Kentucky of the Year book awards or whatever. I, I, yeah, I'm good. You know, it's yeah. a good place to get to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and some of us, like, that's, that's good enough too. You know, yeah. like if you got your dedicated readership and your publisher lets you do what you want to do and with little interference, I mean, that that's, that's out kicking you coverage. I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's really getting to create and having somebody that's willing to, to work with yeah. you. And I'm I mean, happy. I'm, I'm, I'm very satisfied with my life as a writer right now. I'm yeah. very happy with it. Um, I wouldn't do anything differently. Um, this book I'm writing on now though. And I don't know what kind of time you've got me on here, bub. I got you whenever you need to go. I know you got an appointment here coming up and I only got one question or so left. So you talk about whatever you, whatever you want. Uh, to. Yeah. Let's see. I don't know. I guess what I'm, what I really like about seeing folks like yourself who not only are writing the stuff I think is important personally to me as a person and as a writer, but you're coming at it with sort of this, you're not a sellout. And it's an, it's unusual for somebody to be come out of an MFA program. Let's be honest about it. Okay. Come out of an MFA program where you're kind of taught to write popular literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Unless, of course, you land in my classroom where I'm never going to ever talk about popular literature. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I just ain't going to do it. Yeah. Uh, and come out of there with sort of that independence and that that sort of independent way of looking at how, what you're going to do. And you're not going to necessarily just because if you can write a sentence good and you know how to tell a story, you can write a book on purpose that a big five publisher would give the time of day and then mm-hmm. read it. You can get out of the slush pile if you're able to write and you can, you know, you can hold a sentence together and you can tell a story. Then you can sit down and make that the almost the exact way that, you know, a big publisher would like. And it'll give you a better chance of being published there. The the where you the place a person gets to as a writer is whether or not. And I don't call it selling out. I just call it a decision. Mm-hmm. You get to the place where you say. Am I going to do that and try to and, and write a book I know could appeal to a mass audience? Or am I just going to write what I want to write and know that I'm forever sacrificing that as a possibility? Yeah. Unfortunately, I feel like that is the crossroads and you mm-hmm. have to go one way or the other. And um, I know when it was for me. And uh, I think I think probably every writer it has to occur to them at some point. I think it was easier for me because undergrad college, I was, I was in a lot of bands, right? Mm-hmm. Wrote so- wrote songs and stuff, and and so your first bands are always cover bands, right? Yeah, like you're you're gonna play cover songs, you're gonna get your chops and 
see yep. if you can do this or not. And that that's eventually you're like, you know, I didn't get into this to play cover songs, you yeah. know? So that's kind of like what you're talking about there. I can cover a book and that's, put that's it, it in it, a style. Right. That's exactly what right? I'm saying. And then, and I can feel like, all right, you know, I, it'd be like mainstream Nashville now, which is just mm-hmm. pop, pop tart bullshit. Yeah. But at some point I was like, you know, I'm going to write my own songs. And it was at that moment that I yeah. started to get people to listen. Yeah. And we sold some CDs, you know, yeah, that's and, the only time people recognize that in, in art. Yeah. They feel, I'm not, feel I'm not one of these people that's going to go to a college bar and sing cover songs all night long. No. And I feel and that's like exactly that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Cover books. Yeah. Cover books. We may have coined a new term cover. We, books. we have cover books. There you go. You coined the term cover books. <laughs> and I need an essay on that for poverty house. And just saying that would be something that would be pretty good. Give me 2,000 words on cover books. Cover books, man. That's exactly what I was talking about. That's a perfect way of putting it. You can write a cover book and get published and go to New York. And and I'm not saying that's the case for everybody. Um, I'm just saying that it's something a writer can do. And do you want to do that or do you want to just write and enjoy what you're doing, find somebody that likes it? And Like, I'm just in the happiest place I could be as a writer. And I, I almost lost my entire career in 2015. I didn't think I'd ever be back to a place where I'd say I'm happy to be a writer, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's a good place to be in, you know, when you're just doing the work you like to do and somebody's there to support you with it. So. Well, and then when people are realist about it and know that most books sell 5,000 copies, you know, right. like everybody thinks I'm going to write a book, it's going to sell a million copies. Well, know, you know, so John, John Grisham will. You know, yep. right? but King. you know, yeah, you know, King, Lee Child, those people, they're going to write books. People are going to eat them up because they're yep. everywhere and they've got big push behind them. But I mean, if you, if you're a realist like that and you go, well, 5,000 books, that's not a hell of a lot of books. If I could sell 500,000, I'd feel all right about it. Well, yeah. You know, and I don't uh, know how many I've sold in my career, but I guarantee it don't break out of four digits. There you go. I mean, that's, <laughs> but I you, the thing, the thing is, you know, you connected with those people. You know, yeah. and I think that's, and you did that, right? Like that's not a marketing department and a PR department and all those people push, 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 and, yeah. and, and skewing the algorithms to push it up a chart. It It's, you know, if somebody picks up your book and they read it or they pick up my book or they, and they read it or read a short story of mine and they dig it and they reply and say, Hey man, I dig that. That's worth a million dollars to me. Yeah. You know, for sure. it's, that's, that's where uh, it's at. So, yeah, uh, you said you had another question or two. I got, to... uh, no, you're good. I got one more and we can wrap on it. And it's kind of, it's kind of fun when I'm going to ask everybody. So you're having barbecue at your house. All right. And you, you can invite three riders. Who are you inviting and what are you going to serve? Living riders. Don't have to be living. They can be dead. We can resurrect them. All right. Flannery O'Connor. Yep. Definitely bringing her. And I don't know, man, maybe a vegetarian dish of some kind i'd have to call out for that one because i don't know what kinds those are but i definitely wouldn't serve her uh, you know peacocks let's see <laughs> so i want to make sure i didn't i just would play it safe and, and make her like a i don't know a salad or something but hey i've heard tell you could take tofu and soak it in pickle juice and bread it and fry it and it tastes like chick-fil-a <laughs> so, okay <laughs> so there there you go breeze pancake breeze pancake soup beans cornbread uh, fried taters. Mm-hmm. So we got Flannery and Brees and then Stephen King. He was an early influence of mine. I love the guy. Um, and, 
you know, as far as what I'd uh, serve him, I don't know, something bloody. <laughs> yeah, some, <laughs> yeah, some that you uh, killed yeah. in a real bad way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that'd be all right with me. Yeah, some deer you maimed and you had to blood trail it for a day yeah. or two. Something yeah. medium rare. Yeah. Something oh, scary. Man. Well, hey, I, I know you I know you got an appointment. God, I love you for doing this and being the episode one. I appreciate the hell out of it, man. Damn, buddy. I love you. You keep riding, and I appreciate this so much. It's an honor. That was Sheldon Lee Compton on the Fair to Midland podcast. If you like what you heard today, make sure that you give us a follow, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, all the things that a good digital citizen does. Uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at f 2 M podcast. Um, you can also go to the Substack and uh, listen in, follow there. It's uh, at the Fair to Midland podcast on Substack. Uh, there's a YouTube channel, the Fair to Midland podcast YouTube channel, where you can stream that and subscribe as well. So, as all the cool kids say, make sure you hit that subscribe button, fam. And we will talk to you next time. Till then, keep riding, y'all. <laughs>